Welcome to Inside the Media Minds. I'm your host, Christine Blake. This show features in-depth interviews with tech reporters who share everything from their biggest pet peeves to their favorite stories and give you a behind-the-scenes look at the life of a technology reporter. We'll learn about the person behind the byline and get their thoughts on the top trending stories. From our studio at W2 Communications, let's go Inside the Media Minds. Hi, this is Christine Blake, and welcome to Inside the Media Minds. For today's segment, I'm joined with Tony Wells um, as a co-host today, and we are here with Jordan Robertson, a cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg News. Hey, Christine. Great. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in today. Of course. So we're really excited to get to know you a little bit more, get to know your background and your coverage area, how you got to Bloomberg, um, and just learn a lot more about you. Sure. So let's jump into it. Um, I know you've been covering cybersecurity and technology for over a decade now, mm-hmm. um, and you've been at Bloomberg since 2011, is uh-huh. that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So what drew you to journalism over a decade ago? Well, so I started with just a brief synopsis. I started out in journalism. It's like a fluke. Like, you know, I took a general ed course at San Francisco State, and, you know, kind of an elective. It was kind of the perfect, you know, it was the perfect kind of coincidence or accident, I fell in love with it. I thought this would be really neat and interesting and an interesting profession and just kind of like started doing internships and things like that. But the thing that drew me to business journalism was, you know, obviously the media industry is, you know, it's tough. It's a tough market. General assignment reporters are being laid off, but business journalism, you know, is very serious, tends to be very serious, sober, kind of important news, you know, and there are documents that you can report on. Uh, So when I joined the AP in, I think, 2005, that was my first full-time job in journalism. Okay. And I started on, like, the early shift. I think I was, like, the 5 a.m. guy. Oh, there you go. While I was going to grad school. So I would do, like, 5 a.m. 5 a.m. broadcast shift, like, rewrite shift, and then go to school. And wow. it was a great training ground. I still think, like, places like AP, wire services in general, just great mm-hmm. proving grounds when you're just starting out especially. Um, but then I, I gradually made my way into technology and business reporting. And there's just a lot I like about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the few areas uh, of, of media coverage where there isn't a ton of accountability reporting. There's a lot of accountability reporting in government, I mean, less and less so in local government, but there's certainly in national government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in business and technology, there isn't enough accountability reporting. So I just I felt like there would be a good window of opening for me there. And AP was a great job. I stayed there from 2005 to 2011, mm-hmm. joined Bloomberg in 2011, and I'd covered cybersecurity as part of my beat at AP, but those are more generalist type, type beats. So it was only kind of a, a fraction of what I did. I'd go to Black Hat every summer and kind of write about it. Mm-hmm. But this was pre-2008 for the most part, and 2008 when Mandiant came out with their APT1 report, mm-hmm. and everybody started talking about China, and, mm-hmm. and you could kind of name countries and hacking and things like that. And there was just a lot more interest in cyber, so that just became a bigger part of my beat. And then now at Bloomberg, it's essentially all that I do. So you've been covering cyber for better part of 10 years now. So what's the evolution? What have you, what, what have you seen change um, throughout the, the industry, the types of news you're covering and what you're seeing the readers really react to? Sure, it was interesting. When it first started, again, my, my cyber beat comprised one weekend every year where I'd go to Black Hat and mm-hmm. DEF CON, I'd write about a bunch of research and do the same thing that all the other cybersecurity reporters did at the time. And there was a little cohort of us, you know, uh, from Wired and The Register and, you know, and Washington Post. and. 
it was great. It was like a little, it was like our, our summer camp too. It was like a hacker summer camp and journalist kind of summer camp too. And, but we all kind of wrote about the same thing, which was research. Mandian's APT1 report, 2008, I, I believe it was 2008, really changed a lot. I mean, it changed, it changed hacking coverage from theoretical attacks in research to real-world attacks that, like, really the government obviously knew all about. I mean, the intelligence community and the FBI were all over, but the public was just not aware of. So I've got to give Mandian a lot of credit for kind of breaking the dam there and kind of allowing reporters or showing reporters what else was really out there. And then so then we started covering actual breaches. But Sounds like that was a turning point. It was yeah. for a lot of us because until then, with few exceptions, a lot of it was research-based coverage. And it was all interesting. It's all fascinating. But there was so much going on behind the curtain. And Mandian kind of kind of lifted the veil a little bit. And we once we all saw what was out there, then it was just... And Brian Krebs, too, mm-hmm. doing the retail breaches. TJ Maxx was obviously a big, a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say there were, a couple of, there were a couple of those events. TJ Maxx, the Mandiant Report, uh, and a few other things. But once those, those things kind of showed us what's possible in cybersecurity journalism, and... It changed a lot, uh, you know. It changed a lot. It also seems like the perception has changed. I remember when TJ Maxx happened, and everybody thought, "Oh my goodness, they're going to go out of business. It's right. Gonna, it's going to damage their brand." And they bounced back pretty easily. And then mm-hmm. flash forward to now, we have a different company getting breached almost on a daily basis, right. and people don't really think that much of it anymore. Right. Yeah. TJ Maxx was a, a watershed moment. There were some payment processor hacks around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and yeah, you thought that these were kind of company-ending events because they were so rarely seen. I, you know, I mean, it's not that they weren't happening. I mean, cyber criminals were obviously very active, but companies just weren't good, as good at detecting this stuff. Um, so yeah, there was all this concern and, and hype around, is this going to kill the company? TJ Maxx is actually the perfect example. It was such an instructive case for me when I started covering this stuff because you walk into it with that perception. This is going to ruin everything that they, they built. Not only did they bounce back, they spent a bunch of money, maybe $100 million or whatever it was at the time. Not only did they bounce back, but their stock was up after a while. So they were better than before. So security was kind of like, and Target was the same way. Like they had one bad quarter because it was Christmas when they announced their, their breach, and people literally stopped shopping there. But, you know, these companies, not only do they respond, but in some cases, most cases, their stock actually improves after because, you know, they've had more visibility. They've been able to talk about cyber more. They've been able to say, hey, we hired these big companies to come help us. And, you know, not saying it could have never happened again, but, like, they actually get a lot more attention toward the positive security things that they've done is a response. I think TJ Maxx benefited from that. They would never say that because it was very expensive for them. TJ Maxx, Target, Sony, like all of these companies that have had these really devastating attacks. And talking about Target, weren't you guys the ones that really did the deep dive on Target about six months after? That might have been... My colleague Mike Riley and and a few others, yeah, I was only peripherally involved. But yeah, they did the deep dive that essentially led to the ouster of Target CEO. And that that was another watershed moment too because it, it showed that... You know, there were the the thrust of that story was there were signals that Target had that they missed, that their security technologies detected, um, but they didn't act on. You know, and it showed a couple of things. One, I think, in the popular conception, it showed that uh, you know Target may have been negligent, you know, or may have you know um, given their security operations kind of short shrift. 
and as a result, the CEO lost his job. But also, I think for those of us covering the industry, it was another reminder that, like, as the industry has been booming, I think it's going to be a $100 billion industry this year, cybersecurity. You know, there's way too much signal-to-noise ratio, and there's no real solution for that. There are lots of companies that purport to solve that problem, but Target was actually a really great example of, like, the more security technologies you buy, the harder it gets to figure out what is the signal to the noise. You know, or I, I had it reversed before, but there was a lot of noise to very faint signal. And, you know, it was, Target was a perfect example of that. Like, yeah, they missed it. They should have acted on it. But ask anybody who works in a data center, you know, there's a ton of those indicators that just pop on your screen all the time. And you never know what's a big deal. Until, until you know for sure what it is, until it really hits you in the face. So, yeah, Target was an interesting one as well because that was, that was one of the first times there was real public accountability for a breach. I mean, a CEO losing their job, it was kind of unheard of. Right, right. So you do these deep dives into, into fascinating topics like security and hacker culture and attacks. Um, how would you describe your style of reporting for our listeners and um, your target readership? Sure. Well, so Bloomberg's audience is pretty diverse. We're pretty lucky at Bloomberg in that we've got, you know, there's, there's, there's a core of Bloomberg's audience that wants to read kind of market-moving news and kind of company news, and there are a lot of people who do a great job of that. I've been really lucky in that in my beat, uh, I've got a couple of colleagues that I work with, Mike Riley, uh, kind of most closely. Uh, we've been really lucky in that we've been able to pursue these long-term investigative mm-hmm. security projects, which you know, we felt was really important to kind of advocate for that because there's, you know, there, just as there are more cybersecurity companies now, there are also more cybersecurity journalists. Right. So it's a great time to be a cybersecurity journalist, but the problem is a lot of the coverage is kind of redundant. And, you know, how do you carve out a niche? How do you stay relevant when there are more people covering the same space that you do, when there are more companies putting out more material, you know, than, than ever before? Um, so our approach was, what if we pick some of these topics and just went really deep on them? And it's a luxury. I mean, I won't lie. I mean, Bloomberg, you know, allows us to do this kind of reporting, and it's just not possible at other places. Um, but we think it's the best way to add value to the discussion. And the only way, I mean, cybersecurity are some of the deepest buried secrets inside companies, breaches, you know, especially breaches that companies don't have to disclose uh, legally, uh, are some of their most deeply buried secrets because it impacts brand and impacts reputation. And so getting access to that information, getting inside some of these big companies, is just very, very hard. It takes a long time. And, you know, the most interesting stuff is that deeply buried stuff. And it just takes forever because companies are secret about this stuff. Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting point. What, what would you say is one of the most um, memorable or interesting stories that you've written recently? I know you probably have a bunch, but. Well, I think the one that most people know is from 2016 called How to Hack an Election, okay. where we connected with this Colombian, this guy, this Colombian in prison down in Bogota, who, uh, who had this incredible story that was almost too good to be true, you know, uh, but we wound up validating it through several, several means about, you know, manipulating elections around the world, uh, especially in Latin America, you know, kind of on the payroll of this political power broker. And we met him in prison. He was already in prison for an election hack in, in Colombia. And we had uh, a colleague down in Bogota go meet him and, and see if he knew about other stuff. 
And he tells this amazing story, and we eventually get to a point where, like, this is an amazing story, but we can't write any of it. Like, this is not – how do you prove it? Yeah. Turns out he, he had proof, uh, you know, and we were able to validate that proof. And it was just incredible. So that was one of my favorite ones. Uh, I also did a story that got published the week Trump was inaugurated, so, like, nobody saw it. But I love this story where I went to India, and it was called the Mauritania Exploit. It's about this Indian cyber weapons dealer who got mixed up in this crazy like hostage situation in Mauritania in West Africa. Uh, he was trying to sell the government these spy tools. The deal went bad. He had to leave people behind. And this guy was in prison there in a bad, bad prison for like I think two years, over a year at least. And it was just a real indication of how dangerous this world of even though it's this digital weapon, you know, the market for these things can take you to some really bad places, just like the market for selling physical weapons does. And this guy got in way over his head. So it was, you know, and luckily we helped we helped get that guy who was in prison, his, one of his kind of bodyguards, out. Uh, and the Mauritanian government was under enough pressure and they kind of let the guy go. And he was facing kind of basically potentially the rest of his life in prison under – unspecified charges just just because they could hold them you know because he was associated with this guy who you know the deal went bad for these cyber tools so those two are like wow. some of my recent favorites i think the, the thing i like about your coverage and, and you get lumped in with the cyber security reporters but when i read what you're writing it, it reads almost like a movie script sometimes and and you and Thanks. i talked off the record sometimes about you know where you've had to travel what you've had yeah. to do yeah. the guy that was you know it was they had a turkish mattress store as a that's right oh that was the other one the port of antwerp hackers yeah white hat hackers who got busted hacking the port of antwerp for a drug cartel uh in uh in europe right yeah i mean mixed up with all kinds of crazy people and and you're so you're going beyond again you get lumped in with these the cybersecurity reporters but you're going beyond that you're actually looking at it from more of a physical standpoint a lot of times too how does it tie into the real world it's not just a hack for the sake of a hack but it's what was the impact? Thing, yeah, I mean, I think I think we have tried to. We've been lucky to. I mean, not only at Bloomberg have we been able to have the bandwidth to do these really long-term investigative projects, some of which go on far longer than you ever expect because it's hard to get hard to get what you need for these kinds of stories. But we also have Business Week, and Business Week has been a great vehicle for us to publish these kind of like movie-like you know plots. But you're right. I mean, one of the things we've really tried to do is focus less on data theft, which there are lots of people covering that. Not because it's not important. It's important you know, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, as organized crime, as the criminal element, as nation states, you know, start to do old school crime in a new school way with digital tools, that's just an interesting area for us. So, like, that was an example of, like, we've all seen The Wire. You know, and on The Wire, you know, there was one season, it was season two, where, you know, people were bribing, the drug cartels were bribing dock workers to wave shipments of drugs through. Well, that's all the hackers were doing in in Belgium. You know, they were hacking the port of Antwerp to get the codes that let the drug shipments from Colombia through. It's an old school technique, but using new school methods. So I think as organized crime, as, you know, uh, the criminal element adopts these digital tools to, uh, you know, accomplish old school you know, criminal methods. Uh, it's it's just fascinating because sometimes they don't work. Like in the case of the Antwerp guys, you know, the hackers were, were pretty good, but, you know, the as our story pointed out, it was 2015, I think, 
they were just bumbling around too. I mean, they this was this was new territory for everybody. So these really savvy, sophisticated drug cartels that had been running drugs for years. They enter the cyber realm and they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so there's one like great scene in that story where one of the hackers was caught because he couldn't get some data out of one of these shipping companies that he'd hacked into. So he, he had to implant something on their computer systems, but it could only beacon out via Wi-Fi. So he had to drive into the parking lot in the middle of the night of this shipping company. And he like he he put this antenna on the hood of his car and his la- he's working on his laptop, you know, trying to access the data inside the shipping company to get the data out, and that's how he gets busted. Once they realized there was this this intrusion, they reviewed all the si- the um, the surveillance footage, and they see this guy in the parking lot in the middle of the night with an antenna on the top of his car, <laughs> like you know. So so you wind up with like really ridiculous scenarios like that. But that's not e- that's yeah. not even that uncommon, right, right. you know, because these these gangs don't know how to do this stuff. The election hacker in Colombia. He was pioneering a lot of this stuff as he went along. So, you know, it's interesting to watch the evolution of this stuff as, again, kind of old school criminals and, you know, kind of try to adopt it. So with, with your reporting style, you and I have talked about this kind of on the side a lot. But with your reporting style um, and where you kind of fall in the, in the industry, cybersecurity reporting, I know you hear from a lot of vendors. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're constantly being pitched. You're constantly being, you know, people are... Hey, if I if I could get Jordan to write about what we do, um, but we've talked about what you look for in a source and what makes somebody valuable versus versus mm-hmm. less valuable to you. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about you know for from a vendor point of view, from a hey we're we're not in the cyber crime area, we're more in the solving the issues area. What does it take for them to be useful to you and and for them to kind of generate that level of coverage with you? Sure. Yeah, well, I think you guys do a great job of this. Uh, is you know, they're the, for, from my perspective, and every reporter, depending on their beat, is going to have a different take on this. But from my perspective, what's really most important is that I'm put in touch with people who are really smart. And because I, I always like to say, like, I'm only as smart as the people I talk to. If I don't have good people in my network, then I don't learn what's going on. So what's most important for me is to be in touch with people who really know what's going on. We always talk on background. Like, that's always my, like, ground rule. Like, Everything's on background, but if I want to use something, I want to write about your company or your research, like, then you'll know. We'll talk about it, and then it'll be really transparent. But having that background relationship is, this, for, my, for my, what I do, is the single most important thing. Because these people who work for companies, like, you'll often have really highly technical people who know a lot of other really highly technical people, and they all talk. And, you know, kind of getting that window into the, these worlds that I'm not a part of. I'm a journalist. Like, I don't hack. I couldn't program my way out of paper bag, you know? But, like... So talking to people who are who are deep in that world, always on background, having a direct line to them sometimes, like, you know, but just having having that accessibility and those conversations that may not even have anything to do with the vendor, but like that's that's what's most important to me because I learn what's going on, I develop a relationship with them, and you know, and I've done this before, where um, you know where you'll be talking to somebody for a long time and they help you out. They help you understand technical concepts that I, as a non-technical person, wouldn't understand otherwise. You know, and then at some point, what they're doing feeds into some other project that I'm working on, and there might be a great opportunity to break out some research. Like we, a recent example is we profiled profiled a guy in Business Week uh, not too long ago, a few months ago, who uh, from a company called Eclipsium out of Portland, and they're doing really interesting deep-level firmware analysis. Uh, stuff. He's a security company doing firmware analysis. Really heady, really technical stuff. 
But I've been talking to those guys for a long time, you know, for uh, for various projects, and they came up with some research that I just felt was like really fascinating. I didn't meet them, you know, intending to write about the company or anything like that, but we'd been talking long enough that it just became kind of a natural fit. Like, oh, you've got some amazing research. It was related to the Meltdown Spectre stuff, but it was kind of like part two. And it just kind of happened organically because I think the mistake a lot of communication shops make is like, okay, we've got this research, we've got this product announcement. I mean, that for me doesn't work. Some publications cover that stuff. But for me, it's like research is, is usually pretty interesting, but you know, if I don't know the person, I don't know the context, I've got to like, like firmware stuff, it took me months to understand kind of how that stuff worked. And the opportunity kind of arose organically. And I know a lot of shops don't have the patience for, for that. Or like, there's no obvious payoff to like, I'm connecting this reporter to this guy once every few weeks, and they're not even talking about the product, they're not even talking about this and that. But the way I like to say it is, all the, inside all of these companies, there are people who know their stuff, who have value to these conversations. It's just a matter of figuring out who they are and then starting that dialogue. Because for me, at least, that's the most valuable thing because I always learn something. I, I really struggle to think of a, a background meeting I've taken where I haven't walked away learning something. You know, whether it's something I follow up on or not, I mean, who knows? But, you know, all, there are smart people inside all these companies. And to me, it's just, it's so much better if it's just organic. Like something, you know, they come up with research or they have visibility into a breach or, you know, just something kind of happens organically, and that's just, uh, you know. But every reporter has has different needs. My needs are, luckily, like longer term, and right. that, that they're, kind they're of. They're contacting you, trying to get you to write a story tomorrow. That's not going to happen. It right? usually doesn't work. I mean, even if though I'm not publishing every day, I mean, like my plate is full. <laughs> like you know, trying to unearth some of this stuff and, and getting sources, and so for me, just having those relationships is the most important. And you, you know, you you see pretty quickly who knows their stuff, who's plugged in. And most of these people know each other. I, I mean, right. you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to know somebody, and they know three or four other people, and that that I know uh, as well. And that's just the way I prefer to operate. And I, and I love those pitches. Like I really like when those come in. And say I've got a person, you know, let's say he or she used to work at a bank, or they used to do this kind of incident response or whatever. And you know, that's way more valuable to me than like. You know, even sometimes their current role. I mean, it's like, and that's the other thing too. People's titles can be very deceiving. Like, it's very hard for me to tell from a title or even a bio who's going to be comfortable talking to me, who's going to be comfortable having a cup of coffee with me, like, who's going to be chatty about what's going on in the industry, like, because there's stuff that people talk to me because they want stuff out. You know, they they right. want to see certain issues highlighted. That's why they help. Uh, and it's just hard for me to know who those people are going to be just looking at bios and stuff. And sometimes it's a non-technical executive. Sometimes it's the geekiest tech person in the room. I just, I have no way to know that. So I rely on, on people like yourselves to kind of do that filtering and vetting and say, like, this person really knows what they're talking about. Because uh, just seeing a, a release cross the wire or a pitch come over the transom, I'm like, I don't have any way to tell. This person could be the best source in the world. I have no way to know, right, yeah. <laughs> you know. And it's not always the big companies that I need to talk to either. I just need to talk to people in the know. I think every reporter is the same way. Like, I would take one person who knows stuff and is willing to talk on background versus ten who kind of are, you know, don't know anything and you know or just know the little narrow band of what their company's working on. Like, I don't know. It's just it's it's helpful to get you, you want to maximize your time either as a reporter, or a communication professor, or anything. Right. Like, you want to maximize your time. So I'm going to spend an hour sitting down for coffee or lunch with somebody like you know I'd, I'd like for that person to have as much visibility as possible and hopefully I can provide the same thing you know yeah, so. that's valid, definitely. and this is um, this is something that 
we like to ask all of our guests that come on the show, mm-hmm. but it's what do you think will be one of the biggest headlines in 2018? I know we have so much going on with election security, um, you know, nation state attacks, cryptocurrency. From your perspective, what do you think that may be? Well, you, you actually mentioned two of them that I was going to say. I mean, election election hacking, certainly, because in, in cryptocurrency as well, and I'll, I'll explain okay. why just briefly. But So the election hacking, there was a lot of attention, obviously, in 2016 about the information operations that the Russians uh, you know, did. They leaked emails. They kind of were very public, very noisy. But as we've reported and subsequently had validated, I mean, behind the scenes, they were rattling a lot of doorknobs uh, of state systems and county systems and, you know, party systems and things like that. And as one person put it to us, which I thought was, you know, and, and was very much in a position to know, the scary part isn't what they did in 2016. It's what they learned about how our election systems operate. So they were able to do a lot of really fine-tuned targeting of attacks and information operations involving local elections and things like that. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. So in terms of accessing data, stealing data, altering data, things like that, the Russians learned a heck of a lot in 2016 about how our systems work. And it's a very hard to understand system. I mean, these are just patchwork, it's a patchwork quilt of state and county and local systems that sometimes talk to each other, sometimes don't. Like, you know, they, they run on different operating systems, they run on different hardware. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a beautiful mess, you know. Uh, but figuring, uh, mapping that is something that the Russians did really well. And that gives them a lot of leverage going into 2018. They don't have to rattle all those doorknobs. They don't have to be as noisy. You know, the, the theory being they could penetrate, if they haven't already, select databases based on what they learned. And so I think election hacking is going to get it's going to get more sophisticated. You know, it's good to see the government working with the states and the counties to kind of filter some of their traffic and look for known indicators of compromise. That's a great thing. But I, I read a Washington Post op-ed, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, from one of these tech consultants who was working with Democratic Party candidates uh, and wrote this op-ed about like, yeah, it's great that counties and states are improving their, their infrastructure security, but you talk to the, uh, the campaign officials for all these local campaigns, they all know what happened in 2018. They're all outraged by it. And they're not securing their own accounts. They don't have two-factor authentication on their emails. You know, they're still sending sensitive stuff as PDFs because it's easy, uh, you know, kind of unencrypted. Like, they're doing all of these things that are just convenient for campaign officials. But, you know, kind of they sheepishly admit, like, well, yeah, we. but why would somebody target me? And it's like, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> because depending on where you sit, you could be a target for all kinds of reasons. So I think election hacking is going to be a, a big thing because the attacks are going to get savvier, uh, and you're going to see people targeted that you would never expect. Like, look at Ocasio-Cortez, you know, in New York. Like, imagine if somebody has access to her email or her campaign's email. Was she important publicly in terms of the national conversation six months ago? Not nearly to the extent she is today. So if somebody has access to those, those types of folks' data, it's like the intelligence community does this all the time. You collect and collect and collect, and you never know it's going to be important until it until you do. And then that stuff can become really valuable. And the reason I think cryptocurrencies are going to be really important is because those exchanges are getting hacked all the time. Yeah. And you're seeing tens of millions of dollars fly out the door. And those aren't just all like rich hedge fund guys 
you know, kind of investing in those things. Like there are a lot of people who've piled onto cryptocurrencies and just the hacks you're seeing there are just tremendous. Like, you know, why would you, if you were a hacker and you were a criminal hacker, why would you do anything else right now? except hack, hack crypto exchanges. <laughs> They're making up with so much money. And if you can do it fast enough, you can actually cash out pretty quickly. So I think those two things are going to be even bigger going forward. Yeah. I think that's that really covers everything we want to talk to you about today. I mean, we can't thank you enough for coming in our studio, coming on the show. I know we've been looking forward to having you in. I'm happy to um, help. Yeah, so thanks so much. And um, yeah. hopefully we'll be in touch soon. And for everyone listening, thanks for joining us on Inside the Media Minds. And stay tuned for our next episode.